Sidebar is brought to you by Monterey College of Law, San Luis Obispo College of Law, Kern County College of Law, Empire College of Law located in Santa Rosa, and the Colleges of Law with campuses in Santa Barbara and Ventura. Welcome to Sidebar, discussions with local, state, and national experts about protecting our most critical individual and civil rights. Co-hosts, Ladine's Jackie Gardena and Mitch Winnick. I think those of us in the legal profession owe a duty to our profession to be apostles of the gospel of the rule of law. We're to the point where we can't just sit back and say, well, this is how it's worked for the last 200 years, because it's not working right now. Welcome back to Sidebar. That was today's guest, Charles J. My name is Mitch Winnick, and I'm the Dean of Monterey College of Law. My name is Jackie Gardena. I'm the Dean of the Colleges of Law with campuses in Ventura and Santa Barbara. Jackie, today our sidebar program addresses the alarming question of whether the American judicial system, including the United States Supreme Court, is losing the public's respect and trust. And if so, what can be done to redirect our courts and our judges along a path that restores faith and trust? Before we bring in our guest, Charles J., Jackie, I know that you had experience working in the courts. Tell us a little about that. I had the privilege of working in the federal judiciary. I worked for Chief Judge William Young. I worked for Judge Levin Campbell at the First Circuit Court of Appeals. I found all of the judges I had contact with to be incredibly dedicated to not just the work, the day-to-day work, but to the judiciary itself. So it's painful for me to see the kinds of activities and conduct or just appearances of impropriety that we're seeing come from the Supreme Court and, and really a lot of state court judges as well, especially at the Supreme Court level at the state court. Jackie, that sets us up perfectly for today's program. Our distinguished guest today is Professor Charles Jay, the John F. Kimberling Professor of Law at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law. Professor Jay's writings on judicial conduct include more than 80 books, book chapters, articles, reports, and other publications. He served as co-reporter to the ABA Joint Commission to revise the Model Code of Judicial Conduct and has the rare experience of having served as an expert witness and special counsel in several judicial impeachment trials. I'd like to jump right into it. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas recently participated and voted on a case in which, arguably, his wife, Ginny Thomas, was involved as an interested party. In fact, Ms. Thomas testified before a congressional committee regarding her involvement in the issues that were the basis of the case. Justice Thomas did not consider his involvement to be a conflict of interest. Charlie, you have written and spoken in favor of establishing a code of conduct for the U.S. Supreme Court. Tell us, why do you think that's necessary? The reason I think it's necessary is is you begin with the proposition that these codes have been in place, you know, in one way, shape or form since the 1920s. All 50 states have them. The lower federal courts have one. There are 25,000 judicial officers in the United States. All but nine are subject to a code of conduct. The nine that aren't are in the highest court of the land. 
you highlighted Justice Clarence Thomas's in, involvement in essentially presiding over a case in which his wife would seem to have a vested interest insofar as, as her correspondence was part of the subpoena at issue in the case. And so he probably should have disqualified himself and didn't. But that's not an isolated example. A few years ago, Justice Ginsburg was interviewed by CNN and others in which she openly criticized then-candidate Donald Trump, which was also in violation of the Code of Conduct. Justice Scalia, at, earlier on, was speaking in, at a fundraiser for the Federalist Society, likewise a violation of the Code of Conduct for lower court judges. So my point is simply that this is a problem that has afflicted multiple justices over the recent years. And while the Chief Justice has said, well, we don't need a code because our justices can consult the code applicable to lower court judges. The reality is they're not consulting it close enough because they keep breaking it. I should add, by the way, that the leak of the Dobbs opinion, if that was done by a justice, would likewise violate the code of conduct. So you've got a variety of circumstances in which you got Supreme Court justices doing stuff that is unethical if you consult codes applicable to everybody else except them. And I know, Charlie, that this is a somewhat of disagreement among scholars and among those in Congress and the courts about whether or not Congress has the ability to impose a code of ethics. There is a bill before Congress right now that would require the Supreme Court and other federal courts to implement several ethics and transparency practices. But I think Chief Justice Roberts has suggested that it's unclear whether Congress has the constitutional authority to direct a co-equal branch of government in this way. Given that in our system, the Supreme Court is considered the final arbiter of what the Constitution means, this seems like a game of chicken between Congress and the courts. How does this get resolved? First of all, I think that the Chief Justice is playing poker here. At the time he questioned the constitutionality, he also questioned the constitutionality of disqualification statute that has been in place operative against the Supreme Court since the 1950s. And the idea that Congress is without power to ensure that the appellate jurisdiction of the Supreme Court is not limited to judges who are impartial strikes me as being a reach. But when it comes to the code of conduct in particular, the point I'll make is that that we already have in the Constitution an obligation of all public officials to take an oath of office. We've got a statute that specifies the oath for federal judges, including Supreme Court justices, in which they swear to be impartial. And the idea that you couldn't flesh out what that means with reference to a more elaborate code explaining when a judge is impartial and fit for service strikes me as being a reach. But I think this is a game of chicken, as, you're, as you say. I think that it is a matter of whether the, the Supreme Court can unfortunately be shamed into doing something after it is repeatedly being embarrassed. And I think that it really is best accomplished not by legislation, but by less formal interaction between the Judiciary Committees and the Supreme Court, culminating in the, the court informally appointing a committee and getting the job done on their own without Congress having to jump in feet first. That is my preferred solution. But I think Congress, understandably, is keeping their feet to the fire until then, because the court is just being intransigent. And most sadly of all to me, this has become a partisan issue in ways that it really doesn't need to. I think we saw this play out a little bit with the Alito case when, when the New York Times dropped the story about Justice Alito 
allegedly providing information about the Hobby Lobby decision. The House Judiciary Committee sent a letter to the court saying, we want an explanation for this. And the court's counsel responded in defense to Justice Alito. So is is that where we are now? It is where we are now. And I don't have any principled objections to that being where we are now, insofar as the letter coming back said, look, the accusation is factually inaccurate. I, I didn't leak the decision. I mean, if he had admitted to leaking the decision and basically flipped off the, the Congress at that point, we'd be having a different conversation. But because I think that there are rules against using material obtained confidentiality on the court for, for other purposes than court purposes. And that is kind of where we are. Now, if this were a lower court judge, we would have a he said, she said situation in which the court could appoint an investigating committee and see whether who was right and whether discipline was warranted. When we come back from this brief break, we'll hear about whether the Supreme Court is actually subject to any disciplinary process. Is your skill level in desktop software inhibiting productivity as a current or future legal professional? Would an elevated understanding of basic office technologies such as Microsoft Word, Excel, PowerPoint, and PDF help streamline your workday? The Legal Technology Assessment, LTA, by ProCertis is a benchmark assessment and a training platform for law students and all legal professionals. Our online application establishes fluency within the most widely used tools of the trade. ProCertis is reshaping online learning. Come check us out at www.procertis.com. Welcome back. We're talking with court ethics expert Charles Jay about what, if any, ethics rules are in effect for the U.S. Supreme Court. Charlie, is there any sanction other than impeachment for misconduct by a Supreme Court justice? The Supreme Court isn't subject to disciplinary process. And while I do favor having the court have its own code, I understand why we can't impose a disciplinary process on them by means other than impeachment, because it would really become a mess very quickly as partisan lobbyists start jumping in, trying to get justices on the court disciplined at every turn. But I'm okay with Justice Scalia taking it seriously, responding, and as he did, in a way that sort of suggests, if his version is right, that his conduct was innocuous. Charlie, you're an expert on the issue of judicial recusal. Yes. For the non-lawyers in the audience, recusal is when a judge is determined to have a conflict or the appearance of a conflict with the case being presented in front of them. Can judges be expected and or trusted to self-regulate when they should be recused from a case? I think the answer is, in typical law professor fashion, yes and no. I think that the, the answer is no in the sense that having, you know, the, the, the norm across the country continues to be having judges evaluate their own fitness to preside, their own impartiality. And the psychological science tells tells us that people are terrible judges of their own bias. People tend to think that they are unbiased and those around them are biased. And so expecting a judge to be able to divine their own uh, real or perceived partiality, it's like asking someone to grade their own homework, and it just isn't going to work. Uh, on the other hand, yes, in the sense that I think the judiciary is in a position to evaluate the disqualification of its members. And so if we tweaked 
the rules a little bit. And that's one of the things going on in Congress so that there was a way for a judge other than the targeted judge to evaluate disqualification requests. Yeah, there is. I mean, there are going to be people who are skeptical because they don't trust anybody in government. But in my experience, judges do, on the whole, take their impartiality seriously. And I would be okay with the process in which judges are asked to review a different judge's uh, request for disqualification. And so I think that allows for a follow-up question on that issue you just described. We recently had Dahlia Lithwick, author and former Supreme Court reporter for Slate, as a guest on Sidebar. Although it wasn't the subject of our program, Dahlia and other federal court clerks have publicly spoken out about abuse and bullying of judicial clerks, and yet there's virtually no history of judicial discipline for judges accused of unjudicial behavior, behavior that is potentially illegal in other work settings. Is it fair to say that, as a general rule, there's been little discipline for bad judicial actors? And that in the rare cases that have been publicized, judges have been allowed to resign with no findings or acknowledgement of misbehavior? Certainly, it is true that historically, the federal judiciary has really been behind the state judiciaries in their regulation of what I would characterize as workplace matters and particularly sexual assault, sexual harassment problems. That the ABA model code, which I assisted in, in drafting, really uh, was revised in around 2007 or 8 in a way that was intended to take those matters more seriously than than the judiciaries had. And most judiciaries have adopted it, but not the federal court until they ended up basically spiraling into a scandal with Judge Kaczynski and others. And then they finally woke up and engaged in some rule reform that I think went a long way toward toward a, you know essentially updating their code and their process to better cope with that kind of sexual harassment. That said, I think that you still have a very real problem on your hands because judges are just reticent about airing their dirty linen. I understand it to an extent. In other words, that one of the best ways that judges can self-regulate is in a low-key, low-profile way. As Jackie has pointed out, the appearances that judges are rarely held publicly accountable for workplace misbehavior. After this brief break, we will discuss with our guest judicial expert, Charles Jay, whether there are consequences other than public sanctions that are in play when judges misbehave. Welcome to the future of legal intelligence. Trellis, a state trial court research and analytics solution. Trellis offers state trial court records for legal research with analysis on judges, opposing counsel, verdicts, motions, dockets, and legal issues. Use Trellis to discover how judges have ruled on similar motions or to gain insight into opposing counsel, prospects, and clients. To learn more or to request a Trellis demo, reach out to Mike Suarez at mike at trellis.law or visit our website, Trellis. Welcome back. Charlie, we were talking about the reluctance of the judiciary to resort to public sanctions in response to judicial misbehavior or alleged ethics violations. What other alternatives are considered? 
Oftentimes, issues of workplace misconduct are a product of a judge who has some kind of alcohol dependency or psychological issue that can be resolved best either by getting the judge to get into therapy, into rehab, or privately encouraging the judge to step down. But I certainly can see times where it feels as though you are letting the judge off easy. You're letting him resign while in some cases keeping his pension and so on. I think that is still a work in progress. Charlie, changing topics, but another thing you've written extensively about are options for selecting and retaining judges. Several questions are being discussed about the selection of both state and federal judges. So let's kind of go down the list. The election of judges, discontinuing life tenure, establishing term limits, restricting the scope of jurisdiction, and most recently, in the case of the U.S. Supreme Court, increasing the number of justices. None of these are new topics. But is it fair to say that in the current environment, some of these ideas are being taken more seriously? Absolutely. At the federal level, you are for the first time in my career seeing some pretty meaningful and serious people talking about reforming the ways in which federal judges are selected. At the state level, it's really been a perennial debate since the 1840s. And you've got five different methods of selecting judges. Three of them rely primarily on election uh, in one way, shape or form. The other two do not. You know, we can go down that road if you like. It's really just a, a perennial dispute between people who are saying the legitimacy of the state judiciary is better protected if we have the public engaging in a process whereby they have some say-so over the judges that are essentially preside over their cases versus the worry that if judges are subject to reselection processes like re-election, that they are going to be influenced in the decisions they make while elections are pending. And in fact, there's good evidence to suggest that while elections are impending, judges sentence criminal defendants to harsher penalties than they do at other times in the election cycle. And that's deeply disturbing. On the federal level, though, I mean, certainly there's the court packing stuff, which I think of as kind of a, not a non-starter, but it gives me heartburn just because I think that, that for the Democrats who are saying, let's double the size of the Supreme Court, do they really think that the Republicans will simply leave that one lie the next time they get control of the White House and, and the Senate? I mean, in other words, I think that that's just going to create a death spiral. But I do think that there is some room for bipartisan movement, potentially, with a system that doesn't tinker as much with packing, but with saying, look, you know, we're not going to change the Constitution. Anyone appointed still is appointed for life. But that doesn't prevent us from basically saying your tour of duty on the Supreme Court is limited. And that after your tour of duty is completed, let's say after 15 years or whatever, you will continue to sit, but you will sit as a circuit judge or a district judge. You'll be, you know, and that, that would bypass the potential uh, constitution problem and would, you know, if you fixed the appointments at specified periods along the way, or would diminish the incentive for the kind of game playing we see where, you know, every president would know that they have one or two appointments to make and wouldn't be playing games in an effort to expand that number to win points in by, by excessive numbers of appointment on the court at any given time. So I think it is serious. Let me ask one follow up on that. I hadn't really thought about that till you just said this. We read about some of the federal circuits are just completely underwater they don't have enough judges, they can't get through the cases, and some of the more rural districts, 
I'm sure they're not twiddling their thumbs, but there's this huge disparity about the number of cases that get handled. It would seem to me that the idea you just talked about, having Supreme Court justices roll off and maybe be assigned to some of these heavy-duty jurisdictions, could solve two problems. It would certainly alleviate certain problems. In other words, those judges could be redirected to places where they are needed most after their tour of duty on the Supreme Court is completed. Charlie, we're going to take another brief break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, Jackie has some questions about how states select judges and the debate between electing versus appointing judges. The future of law is protecting personal information online. It's ensuring patients' rights are protected. It's knowing how to manage your own business. At the Colleges of Law, you'll find programs built for change to address whatever the future of the legal industry might bring. The Colleges of Law, built for change, built for you. Find your future at collegesoflaw.edu. Charlie, you've just said a lot that deserves to have um, more depth given to it. Um, I'm going to, there's both the kind of federal selection and then what happens at the state. So I'm going to I'm going to focus a little bit right now on states and specifically states that use elections. And there's both for for listeners, there's both states that do explicitly partisan elections where the judge is identified with a particular party. And then there's ones in which it's declared to be a nonpartisan. The Brennan Center does a lot of research around judicial elections. And I know in the 2020 cycle, It was the largest amount of money that was spent specifically in the state Supreme Court elections. I think it was over $100 million on the ballot. Some of the most divisive issues that we're dealing with are going to be dealt with at the state level now. The election cases that are coming forward, the abortion cases. Has the increased spending on judicial elections altered your thinking on judicial elections, how they're run, or whether or not elections remain a viable option? I wrote an article in 2002 called Why Judicial Elections Stink, and my view has softened since then, owing largely to research about legitimacy showing that the public is more at peace with judiciaries that are elected, and so I'm, I'm a little ambivalent about it. That said, there are two serious, serious problems with judicial elections that need to be confronted. One of them is, as you point out, the money point, that the vast majority of the public thinks that money is influencing the choices that judges are making. And there is no question that money talks in terms of its influence on outcomes in judicial races, that there are influences there, and that when elections get nasty, noisy, and costly enough, the legitimacy that judicial elections engender can be compromised in extreme cases. And we are seeing some of those extreme cases. The other point that is at least as important is that we fixate on the point of initial selection when judges are first elected. But we ought to really point out that what really matters is when judges are reselected. 
because that's the point where they've been a judge for a while and their judicial rulings could get them thrown out of office. And so their independence and impartiality can be compromised by the fear that the next election cycle, they're going to get thrown out for following the law. And that, to me, suggests that Ironically, some states with appointive systems are the worst systems imaginable because in states where they appoint their judges but subject them to reselection or reappointment later, the people who are reappointing them are looking closely at the decisions they've been making. And so it's not as clean and easy as saying, well, appointive systems are better. Reselection is problematic. And I think that partisan elections are in many ways you can argue are the worst in terms of generating the most money and the most attack advertising. But as you implied, so-called nonpartisan elections are every bit as toxic. Once the Supreme Court decided about 20 years ago that judicial candidates had a First Amendment right to articulate their positions on issues that could come before them, that also meant they could articulate what their party preference is. They could basically turn what was a nonpartisan race into an effectively partisan race. The only thing that they would do is strip the partisan label off the ballot, and then they could be as partisan as they wanted to be. Do you think state bar associations or board of bar overseers need to take a stronger position when it comes to judicial campaigning? Judicial conduct organizations are in place in all 50 states. I think the problem really is, and this is one place where having the fox guard the hen house is really a little bit troubling. I think on the whole, judges are willing to say, I need to be impartial and judge a fellow judge. But when it comes to campaigning, judges hate to campaign. They hate to generate revenue. The suggestion I've had is that if you're going to have a selection process, perhaps the best one is a new kind of hybrid in which if elections promote legitimacy, have your election, but don't have judges subject to reselection, have rigorous disqualification rules applicable to those judges after they're selected, and have them serve for a long 15-year term, and then they conclude their tour of duty on the state Supreme Court without the risk that they've got to go back and curry favor with the people who supported them the first time. After this brief break from our sponsors, we're going to shift our conversation to discuss whether there's a future for artificial intelligence, known as AI, to replace human judges with computerized judges. The hybrid online JD program at Monterey College of Law offers the flexibility to attend classes remotely. Two factors for me when choosing a law school were that it needed to be accredited and offer an online option. The hybrid program allows me to attend classes remotely, which really helps fit my professional and personal schedule. The program is structured and rigorous and taught by professors currently practicing in the legal field. To learn more or to apply for their next term, visit MontereyLaw.edu. Jackie and I would like to take a quick minute to recommend a great podcast that, like ours, is dedicated to understanding the big issues facing our democracy. An honorable profession profiles the rising stars in American politics. From mayors to attorney generals, an honorable profession gives listeners a view from the front lines of our democracy. Check out An Honorable Profession wherever podcasts are found. So, Charlie, one of the things we like to do is look to the future. And I want to take you into an area that you've not written on that I know of, but I think you will have opinions on. 
We previously had Orly Lobel, a guest who's talked about the use of artificial intelligence in the judicial system. What are your thoughts about transitioning from live judges in some circumstances to a robot judge? Some circumstances is the operative point. Could I see it, say, in traffic court? Maybe. But I think the way to think about this is is that as you were asking the question that I, I, I was reminded of Chief Justice Roberts, who said that all we're doing is calling balls and strikes here when he was being appointed, which implies that there is this definable strike zone, which, of course, a computer can create. And all we do is call the balls and strikes. We don't make the rules up as we go. But what I found interesting in a book written, which interviewed uh, major league umpires, they described the strike zone as being like the Constitution. It's a living, breathing document that allows for the integration of discretion and so on. I think that really what it comes down to is that a majority of cases are easy cases. Would it be possible for judges in the, those instances to be replaced by some sort of computer modeling? Maybe so. That said, what we know about the way these models have been used at the sentencing phase and at the bail setting phase is that they're only as good as the coders. And if the coders are integrating biases into their algorithms, it's going to manifest that way. But the other point is that judging isn't like calling balls and strikes. It is an art as much as a science. When you are exercising discretion, when you need it the most, that is where anything a computer generates is going to be garbage, that the judge is going to be needing to be tapping into, you know, essentially understanding the positions of the parties, having empathy skills, being able to, in, in some ways, exercise a form of creativity that computers are ill-equipped to do it, certainly at this point. I think that there are places in the legal profession where computerized systems are helpful, certainly systems that are, are designed to assist pro se litigants, litigants who don't have lawyers, to get them ready and up and going. But you start talking about having judges being replaced by computers, situations where the facts are ambiguous, where the law is indeterminate, I think that you are uh, courting disaster. I think that idea of the, the robot judge or using artificial intelligence just brings us back to what I think is the core issue at play in this discussion, which is that idea of an independent judiciary and then the ability to have accountability for that judiciary. When you're thinking about that balance between independence and accountability, it feels like you have a, a predisposition towards that idea of the independent judiciary and the need to recognize that and uphold that. And I guess I'm struggling with how do we hold judges accountable specifically Supreme Court justices, what are the mechanisms in place to do that? We're so in favor of independence. It feels like we're completely undermining the accountability part. First of all, give me, I can give you a general response and then a specific one in, in, concerning the Supreme Court. In general, I think it would be given that when you introduced me, you, you spoke of me as someone who's helped impeach judges. That's accountability. Right. The code of conduct for judges, that's accountability. Talked about disqualification of judges, that's accountability. In addition, judges are accountable to the appellate process. Judges are accountable to legislative override in cases that aren't constitutional. They're subject to uh, constitutional amendments, which are quite viable in state systems, less so in federal. They are accountable to Congress via budget 
hearings involving their budget, restrictions on their jurisdiction, and via the way courts are organized and reorganized. So there are a dozen different ways that I've written about at some length by which judges can be held accountable. And I think also at the ballot box where you've got the incompetent or corrupt judge being thrown out by the voters. The Supreme Court is, as you sort of imply, an exception because the limits of Congress's ability to regulate the Supreme Court by virtue of the Constitution is more limited. The Supreme Court isn't subject to appellate review. Trying to get a constitutional amendment to override a Supreme Court decision has only been successful half a dozen times in our history because it's so hard to do. And so we are stuck in a position of really having to grapple with this limited accountability point. If culturally you have a Supreme Court that knows its place, that respects its institutionally conservative role, in other words, that it respects precedent, it respects its role, you can get by with a court that is self-accounting. But what we're dealing with recently, and I think it has, it's been a dramatic pivot, 2019, 68% of the public supported the Supreme Court. As of a couple months ago, it was down to 25%. And for the first time, we're seeing political scientists saying that they are taking a legitimacy hit. Your question is gaining new currency. It's something that we need to think about. And I think limiting the terms that they're on there is one way. It's not holding them accountable, but it's limiting the damage that they can do. Right. Cynics will say, well, if they violate the code of conduct, what are you going to do about it? True enough. But I think that if you are looking at what outsiders looking in are able to do right now, they can never say the Supreme Court is acting unethically because there's no code of conduct to which they are subject. I think it will make those conversations easier to have and harder to dismiss as partisan nonsense if the Supreme Court says, here is what it means to be an ethical Supreme Court justice. You point to the conduct of a justice and say, you didn't do that. That will make it easier, I think, for the press and the public to hold them accountable in that limited sense. So, Charlie, as a wrap-up, a tale of caution. There's some balance going forward and hope going forward that we will restore some of what we talked about at the beginning, faith, trust in the system. Yeah, I mean, I think those of us in the legal profession owe a duty to our profession to be apostles of the gospel of the rule of law. We're to the point where we can't just sit back and say, well, this is how it's worked for the last 200 years, because it's not working right now. Charlie, this is exactly as interesting and challenging as we anticipated that it would be. We, too, are devoted to these issues and the rule of law. Thank you so much for joining us on Sidebar. I hope you'll come back as a guest again. My pleasure. It's been great. Thanks so much. Mitch, I think this was challenging conversation for me for some of the reasons that we've talked about, which is what I heard Charlie say during our conversation, especially at the end, was that he actually thinks there might be a crisis and that real reform is necessary. And interestingly, one of the things that he is tying reform to is term limits, which is not something you hear a lot about because the push has always been about, at least at the federal level, let's pack the Supreme Court. It seems like it might be a viable option to do some federal judicial reform. I'm less sanguine about the state court election process when we're talking about the amount of money and especially the special interest money that is poured into those elections. 
there's no reason we couldn't put expenditure limits on judicial elections. That's something that could be done at the federal and state level. I also find a lot of credence in this idea of term limits. But like you and like Charlie, I do have some very grave concerns about the current behavior of the U.S. Supreme Court, and I further worry that that behavior and that attitude then just trickles down to the lower federal courts and absolutely to the state courts as well. It doesn't send a good message to both current attorneys as well as our students, aspiring lawyers. Jackie, as we said previously, judicial conduct, ethics, and discipline really is a cautionary tale for the future. Well, I want to thank everyone for spending time with us today. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can find out more about Professor Jay as well as our other guests at sidebarmedia.org. I want to thank our producer, David Eakin, who is also the composer and performer of all the original music you've heard on today's podcast. And also thank you to Gogo Zoger, who is our social media millennial expert. Colleges of Law and Monterey College of Law are part of a larger organization called California Accredited Law Schools. All of our schools are dedicated to providing access and opportunity to a legal education to marginalized communities. For more information about the California Accredited Law Schools, go to calawschools.org. That's calawschools.org. For more information about Jackie Mitch and Sidebar, go to sidebarmedia.org.